All right, hey guys, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Stay Conscious. Um, Talisa and I have just been thinking a lot about, I guess, just society at large and trying to like make sure that we don't stay focused on our lives and what's going on just with us. And actually, like, I started catching up on the news the other day, yes, and it, it just felt really good. This sounds weird to say, but like reading the news and knowing what's going on just in the quote unquote real world helps me really like minimize my issues and remind me that like there is life and life outside is important more 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 important than me writing my scholarship essays or whatever and what i'm dealing with in two seconds when i like lose something literally me when i lost my eyeliner this morning (laughs) (laughs) um no i definitely agree and watching the news really definitely helps me um stay informed and helps me find things to post on stay conscious um, and talk about on our episodes um and i would like to say that the news app on if you have like an ios or an apple device the news app is really nice like i personally most of the time listen to msnbc what do you listen to uh i read the new york times honestly i don't well i don't have cable so yeah me neither we just normally like put it up on hulu yeah 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 you got the the rich people hulu yes. the premium. <laughs> i have hulu premium i do indeed um it's very bougie. But anywho, not the point. Um, and so today, that leads us kind of into our topic about talking about the news and staying informed. So I am now done, but I was applying for the Jackie Robinson Foundation Scholarship. And one of the as- essays was actually asking me to choose a global issue that I found to be pressing, for lack of a better word. And so I chose the criminalization and adultification of black girls. And so that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, like, you know, of course, Talise was calling me like, Kennedy, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to write about? And we were just kind of thinking about the things that really stuck with us and the, the systems of oppression that we have to live in daily. And we were like, this issue never goes away. It's always going to be pressing. And so, I mean, we thought it was kind of just talking about it for Talise's essay helped us realize how passionate we are about this issue. And we kind of wanted to share that passion with you guys because this is something that not everyone knows about. Um, I know when Talisa and I first learned about it, it was something that had perfectly articulated what we had experienced or like just known about um, intuitively, but never had known that there was a word for it. And so I guess we should start by like defining both adultification and criminalization. Exactly. Um, So adultification is the process by which adults or people in positions of authority um, view BIPOC, uh, black indigenous or people of color, but specifically black girls as more adult-like or less deserving of care or nurturing. And criminalization is really just taking an act that groups of people or individuals themselves do on a daily basis and attaching um, a criminal element to it, like making exactly. it seem bad or yeah, it's making like, it illegal. Exactly, it's funneling them into um, a mentality of criminalization. And one thing that we're going to touch on today is definitely the school to prison pipeline that funnels um, black boys and girls and people in co- people of color in general into the prison system um, by criminalizing their <laughs> actions and their words that are normalized for their white counterparts. Um, And so that is something that we found extremely important 
um, as we are still in school. We're about to go to college, A, class of 2021. Um, but we, I have personally recognized it maybe in a minuscule standpoint. I know that Kennedy and I go to a PWI, which is a predominantly white institution, but at the same time, um, I still witness some of these things in a little bit more of a minor scale. I don't know if yeah. you see the same thing. Yeah, a little, it's, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but some, I haven't experienced the full gravity of adultification and my behaviors exactly. being criminalized, but in a microaggressive way, I have. Yes, and we can't. We can't, you know, stand here or sit here or whatever and not validate the the smaller instances of adultification because that's still adultification. Yes, definitely. Um, I think the most pressing, to use your language, example that we have in the news today is um, about Grace, um, yes. a 15-year-old Michigan student who was sent to juvenile amidst the pandemic because she didn't complete her homework on time when her school switched to remote learning. And, and this and this is despite the fact that Grace was known to have ADHD mm-hmm. and um, she was already on probation. Mm-hmm. And so even I, though the governor of her state said, you know, don't send don't send people to juvenile because we are in a pandemic. Yes. We are literally in a pandemic and it's just not safe. Exactly. And putting children in that position of getting sick is inhumane to yeah. say the least. And I think and it so just outweighs whatever quote-unquote bad you think the child did in the first place. No, exactly. And so um, this actually, from when we're recording this, this happened last year, we can say, because it's January 2021. Um, But I think it's still relevant. And that's why we're going to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. So initially, Grace was on probation because she had gotten into an altercation with her mother, Mm -hmm. and that violated her probation. Um, And so, you know, or well, no, that sent her to probation. Mm -hmm. And then her school transitioned to remote learning. And so I guess a stipulation of her probation is that she had to complete all of her assignments on time um, and then stay engaged with school. But this is difficult. And I mean, for people, even for people who don't have ADHD, being in an environment that was not all, was not meant for learning and for teaching yourself because it's your home, it's your house, it's where you relax it's where you find other sorts of comfort that's not necessarily a workplace you know what I mean no exactly and when I was home I would be in class for 20 minutes and then pick up my phone and be like what's going on on Instagram because you know what I mean in your home you're used to being in a relaxed state yeah so now having to share that space where you're now at home but also having to be productive like you're normally in your workplace Mm -hmm. is difficult and it's a hard transition I mean we've been doing it for what Months. Almost a year now, and I'm still not. I still haven't perfected it. Right. I mean, I still get distracted. I still want to get up and do things that, um, in the middle of class. And so I completely understand Grace. You know, struggling with doing their their schoolwork, and then on top of that, mm-hmm. she has ADHD. You know what I mean? So on. So that already heightens um, the struggle to stay on top of your work. Yeah, it adds a level of complication, and then the criminal system the juvenile system just totally ignored that they Mm -hmm. didn't understand the precarity of her situation and how this was unique and instead they just said nope violation of your probation you didn't complete your schoolwork on time you go to juvenile now exactly and that's crazy and that's wild to me that is like i mean if you really want to narrow it down despite 
any history with the criminal justice system, she got sent to juvenile detention because of one homework assignment. One homework assignment. And I think that's one homework assignment on a technicality. Yeah. Like, think about it. If you and I don't complete our assignment, it's just on us. Yeah. But with Grace, because of one incident prior to this, her not completing her homework assignment is now on everyone. It's, yeah. it's something that doesn't only affect her, it affects her future, it affects her mother, and the rest of her family at large. Mm-hmm. And so, a norm, like we said, a action that would be normalized by her counterparts, in this case, not completing your homework, was now something that was an illegal activity for this one individual, but it's inappropriately illegal because Grace has this added level of complication. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm not saying that having ADHD is a handicap, but I mean, can we just acknowledge the fact that this is a That's this is a real complication. it's exactly. an added complication. This is a real instance where, I mean, I'm I'm not gonna say that you know the criminal justice system needs to employ some empathy because I don't think that'll ever happen. <laughs> but like me neither. Consider consider your audience. Consider the circumstances that surround each case. That that was. How you say? That was just an expectation that was unreasonable. No, exactly. And I like how you brought up the fact about her mother. So Grace's mother actually was behind the fight along with several other black girls to bring justice to Grace. I mean, at this point, Grace's mother tried everything she could to mm-hmm. stop her daughter from going to juvenile. Mm-hmm. I mean, one homework assignment. I mean, we're sitting here and... I can't even rationalize going to juvenile detention for one homework assignment. And it's hard to, of course we're not parents, but I can imagine my mother for one homework assignment and then me just being sent away. I know her mother was ready to post up. Literally, and (laughs) the fact that we had to fight. We had to fight so hard. Exactly. Like, we as individuals, Talise and I, on our own platform, and then us as Justice for Black Girls ambassadors, we used that platform as well to spread the word about Grace, to bring Grace home. Exactly. That shouldn't happen. Yeah, no. And I, and I find myself doing this a lot, especially right now, when I'm about to like have a lot of freedom. We all are um, going into college and or like tech le- school. Technical yeah, school. going technical school, college, anywhere. Um, and I'm like, would this? If I had a different skin tone. Would this happen to me? Because I think that Grace, who was a deep skin tone, was sent just for one assignment. And then I'm like, the actions that Grace displayed were seen to be obnoxious when getting into the altercation with her mother. And I'm like, but also Grace is a child. She's younger than both Kennedy and I. I her age is actually slipping from my brain currently. But she was 15 at the time of this story, but I mean, I don't know when her birthday is. So she may be 16, 16? at the moment. I don't yeah, know. I'm not sure. 15 to 16. 15, yeah, something around there. And so I, like, I'm like, I don't understand. Like, <laughs> I'm at a loss for words because I don't understand how this was able to happen. And we hear in the news multiple different people where, of course, without the microaggressions, without... Um, them being criminalized, but we hear a lot of white students being expelled and suspended, or even just getting detention for things where Grace is going, is getting sent to juvenile. I think that that is difficult, and it's hard to hear, and it's 
demeaning, especially when you are um, a black teenager or child still in the public school system or private school, honestly. I'm not trying to exclude anyone. Yeah. But the thing, the thing about it is because Grace was the one doing it, her, honestly, Grace didn't have any room for error because she was already seen as a quote-unquote threat to society said, quoted from Mary Brennan, the judge that Grace saw. Um, and so anything that Grace did, any actions that she displayed, any behaviors, those were going to be looked at through the lens of criminality. Exactly. Grace is a criminal and, you know, whatever behavior she has is going to fall into this dichotomy that the court created about what criminal behavior actually is. Mm-hmm. They forgot her humanity. No, they did. They, they forgot that she was still an adolescent. They only looked at her as a criminal. And that's what happens so often to black girls in general. Mm-hmm. They're looked at as too grown, quote unquote. They're looked at as ghetto, whatever that means. And they are looked at as criminals. Their humanity yeah. is forgotten. Mm-hmm. And that leads into a statistic that I actually put into my essay, um, thanks to Kennedy. <laughs> and it was from <laughs> the New York Times, um, and they had done their own research analysis that was based on data from the Bureau of Education that stated that black girls were about were actually over five times more likely to be suspended in their academic careers than white girls, at least once. And I think, and over five times is a lot. Mm-hmm. When I hear like two to three times, I'm like, eh, that's, that's a, you know, that's a decent amount. But over five times more likely, let's sit there and process that. Let's second. process that. And that's not even, like, that's consistent with what I know. Because um, in my AP research class, of course, I have to look at topics that kind of relate to the topic for my research project. And, of course, that's social science research. And um, I found, I was looking at studies uh, about punitive punishment Mm -hmm. and schools are more likely to institute a a zero tolerance policy or a more punitive discipline policy when their their student body is brown when their student body is blacker when their student body is composed of more people of color color. exactly and why is that (sighs) i don't know i don't know i mean we've all seen those videos of resource officers um Mm -hmm. that are providing a harsh punishment to students of color for acting like children, to be blunt. I mean, at this point, you know, being in distress, they're thrown around and put in handcuffs. And when you're already in distress, like, what is putting me in handcuffs going to do? If I'm already in distress and then you're, you know, at least acting like you're going to arrest me, how is that supposed to calm me down? It's not. The the point is that it's not. It's not. I, I genuinely believe that when you are in a situation with a police officer and you are a black child, they want, this is the cynic coming out in me. Right. They want you to, they want to take you. Yeah, they do. And so anything that you do mm-hmm. will be used against you. Exactly. Any, any uh, resistance, any sign of, uh, you know, bad behavior, that's going to go against you and that's going okay. to be used to evaluate you. Exactly. Are you a criminal or not? And the answer will be yes. Yes, so that brings into our definition of the school-to-prison pipeline. Would you like to go ahead and talk about that? So the school-to-prison pipeline basically is acts like a little funnel, if you will. So by criminalizing students' actions and adolescents' actions um, that are deemed to be normal by their white counterparts, 
they are funneled into the they're funneled into an external um, an external disciplinary how do you say institution if yes, you will yes 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 <laughs> yeah an external um, discipline institution or even prison at this point because when you are about to exit high school you are commonly um, not to generalize but commonly of the age of 18 to 17 and so that would kind of put you in the position of being placed into adult prison systems. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I've been trying to do a little bit more of my own research on this, and it's been difficult. Um, and I did talk about this a lot when I was applying to college, but at the same time, it's like funneling these children into prison systems, and then people are like, oh, I wonder why we have mass incarceration, and you're like, we're putting adolescent children into positions for them to be criminalized, and then boom, mass incarceration. Like, you know, that was a three-step process I just enabled <laughs> for you. It, it's, it's actually made too easy. It's made too easy. Yes, exactly. The uh, combination of zero tolerance policies and SROs. Now, I'm not trying to bash SROs because I know their, their intention is to, you know, increase the safety in our school. But exactly, especially with the increase in mass shootings correct. and school shootings. And that is not our intention to bash uh, SROs. However, we do, yeah, I was they are a mechanism to... <laughs> export children from their school to the police station that that SRO works at mm -hmm. or just I mean the criminal justice system at large I mean that SRO works in both as a liaison between schools and the criminal justice system juvenile exactly. system and when you have that mechanism there in place it's hard not to use it when you think that the child that is a problem is a problem you see what I'm saying no definitely and Something that I think is not funny, haha, but funny, hysterical, is that I frequently hear my mom say, "She's like, oh, if if, you, if your guys are getting in trouble for that now, I did that a I did that a million times when I was a child." She's like, "That's child behavior, or that's teenager behavior," and I'm like, "Exactly." We don't, ha we don't like, have the space now. The margin for us to be children is is so much smaller now that we are interconnected with our phones and we're able to and parents are able to see what we're, what teenagers are actually doing and yes that's keeping us safe safe to some extent but at some point is it becoming harmful that was supposed to be a uh, question for you to ponder on if you will <laughs> but just literally everything it's it's painful to think about you know what I mean like mm -hmm. thinking about how like you said, the margins for our childlike behavior are always shrinking, always shrinking. We don't have the space, the opportunities to just be ourselves. And in um, a study by the Georgetown Center on Law and Poverty, black girls, they don't, they are seen already as more adult-like. They are seen already as more uh, as more culpable for their actions, is mm -hmm. more responsible and more punishable. They are in need of more punishment. Exactly. And they know more about adult topics, and they need less nurturing. Mm. What does and that they're frequently over-sexualized. I mean, we know that in terms of us constantly being told to put more clothes on or things like that. And they're like five or six. It's like I should not I mean? be held responsible for the actions and thought processes of an adult. Exactly. In my own home, In my especially. house. Facts. This is my home. <sighs> wow, that shook a nerve when I said that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Something that we know too well. Like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be able to get so riled up about just that, just that. that, that instance. Exactly. But we know it so well. It's, 
ingrained in us that we have to we have to change ourselves or mm-hmm. our actions in order to make other people comfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. Exactly. And so I would personally like to be an educator when I'm older. And so I constantly think about how I would like to change this system. Mm-hmm. And and so I actually, we both received a copy of Push Out. Thank you to JBG. <laughs> um, and so I started reading it and I saw that Monique Morris had inserted a little blurb that stated that girls that are seen to be obnoxious or loud or ghetto are actually working against the system that has put them into a system of oppression. Does that make sense? They've like been pushed into the system of oppression and so them acting loud or forcing their voices to be heard or you know forcing to be valued is their definition of defiance and personally I think that's brilliant. Instead of complying with the systems around uh, systems around us that you know define what we should be in order to be a quote-unquote good girl mm-hmm. instead of complying with those we do the or we exhibit the actions or traits that are supposed to make us bad exactly but in doing that we you know are criminalized which I don't understand it's a, is that it's what the a, word you're looking for? I'm thinking, no, I'm just trying to kind of analyze what Dr. Morris is saying to really understand the weight of it. Yes, I'm sorry I don't actually have the direct quote. I could pull it up. But, like, no, I think I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It's, it's subversion. It's subverting the expectations of you as a black girl. And in doing so, exactly. in doing the opposite of what they want you to do, you're liberating yourself. Yes. You're allowing yourself to be who you are. And then you're also adding levels of complexity to your identity because you can be obnoxious and loud and still be a smart person, mm-hmm. still be a, a girl worthy of a higher education, a girl worthy of a life outside of the juvenile system. Mm-hmm. And that's powerful. Exactly. So I actually pulled up the quote, um, and then this is with my own interjections for the purpose of it being an essay. Um, but I said that push out the criminalization of black girls perfectly articulates when black girls vocalize their contempt for the, sub, sub, for the subjugation that they face in schools daily. It is their form of resilience against how poverty has shaped racial and gender oppression. Ah. And that part right there, Perfect. that poverty part, that poverty part, because we think of just poverty as um, a circumstance that is only a result of our own actions or our parents' actions. But that's not entirely true. It's not. You have to pull up the context behind the circumstance. Yes. And we think about how environmental the, the history mental. of our nation is structured around isolating black and brown people and keeping them in a lower state mm-hmm. to uh, perpetuate the social hierarchy where white is on top and brown is on bottom. Exactly. That's not, that's not self-inflicted poverty. Mm-mm. That is, like that Dr. Is Moore says, a poverty that perpetuates racial and gender oppression. Mm-hmm. And that goes circling back to a topic we've talked about frequently, redlining. Redlining. Ah! Uh. <laughs> yes, but that is something that I... Makes my blood boil. It makes, it's something yeah, that like makes a, my blood same. boil. It's, it went same. on for so long, and it just did so much damage, and we are still living in it. Yep. There, I was, when I went to Michigan, um, because my family lives there, and um, I was like, Mom, what, all these houses look the same. Why? And then my mom was like, well, actually, you can 
very easily tell when we are entering the white neighborhoods and when we are exiting them. Yes. And Ooh. I was like, yes. word. And she's like, yeah. I mean, there is there is a line. There is a line between where black houses are and where white houses are. And my mom was like, there are even institutions that are still having to work in Michigan to enforce equal housing, to exactly. enforce fair housing. The Fair Housing Act that was passed way back when, mm-hmm. honestly, too little, too late, because no, the damage has already been late. done. <laughs> and we're still seeing it here. We're still seeing the, the residue of housing segregation. And I mean, honestly, every time I go to Atlanta with my mom, I'm like, gentrification is real. Because I mean, if you think about it, it bothers. It bothers. Yes. It bothers. And you see all these gorgeous houses next to homes that look like they've been abandoned you, for years. You see and you're gorgeous just like, houses in a neighborhood, but the houses are not meant for the people that live in that neighborhood. Yes, right. The houses are meant to attract outside people, normally not people of color, right. to come in and increase um, property values because they think that brown people decrease them. You're right. Oh my, why is that still? Like, didn't, didn't your mom say that in the real world, quote unquote, in realty, where you have a higher population of color, your property values are automatically low? Yes, she did. I remember we were actually having dinner, I think, and she said that. Yes, literally, she did say that. And I have started to completely look at neighborhoods differently. That is a <laughs> vestige mm-hmm. of housing segregation, of the Jim, Jim Crow era. And people, people, people stay, people say, Racism isn't a problem. People say that we are past that. Yeah. And funneling that back into schools, because we did go on a tangent for a second. I mean, when we look at redlining, that affects schooling. That affects the quality of schooling. That affects the quality of schooling, what resources they have, the technology, the computers. I mean, we are so fortunate to have school computers. Oh my gosh, the fact that I could go in my room and see three computers lying on the floor, no, that's privilege. That is privilege. The fact that my school gave me a computer to take home, that's, that's privilege. privilege. Yeah. That I don't have to be without, that I can complete my homework. Exactly. Having the resources, the tools, um, the ability to find teachers qualified oh and teachers that want to be there, teachers that want to do their jobs. I mean, having the right teacher make or breaks your education as a person of color or, or not. In general, having a teacher that cares about you. I mean, That's have, word. on top of that, I mean, that circles right back into children of color in schools. Mm-hmm. Because if these predominantly people of, like, predominantly black schools are filled with teachers that don't care, with lack of resources, they are automatically going to be set up for a course of not failure, but they're going to have a harder time succeeding. Exactly. Let's put it that way. Yes, and that's exactly what I wanted to say because it's, I mean, it's the reality of it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we say that it's the ch- the child's fault for not staying in school. Exactly. But when school isn't the best option for you, when school isn't a productive place because you know that you're sitting there not getting a quality education because you know that what you are learning is not substantive enough to mm-hmm. get you a job, right. you have to go somewhere else. Or, I mean, you feel that you, that person feels like they have to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And what, we deem that as irresponsible, as, you know, primitive, as delinquent behavior, when really that's them taking care of them. That's them surviving. Yeah. And it literally, and exactly like you talking about it in this chronological order, it 
really the school to prison pipeline is like a cycle. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. It is a cycle. Lack of funding, lack of like the care of teachers. It really just brings all those students back into the criminal justice system, forcing them to have to go outside of school to find a way to provide for themselves and their families, and then boom. They, and then we criminalize that behavior and as well. Yeah, we exactly. criminalize survival. It's this way of them not being able to win. And I was um, looking, I was actually on Stay Conscious's Instagram feed, and I saw the story of Patrick Warren Sr. Um, he was a black man who suffered from a mental health crisis, and, the, and his family yes. called you know, um, mental health services to help. And, you know, he received his help, but then the next day, the police arrived at his house, and they weren't supposed to be there. They shot him within five minutes. Crazy. He, standing on his lawn. In distress. Standing on his lawn. He was in distress. And what happened? They criminalized. That behavior. Mental health. Mental health struggles. And he was a grown man. So imagine children. Oh, my gosh. Crazy. And I just, and I just think that it, it comes right back to how BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, don't have the space to be who they are, to be an individual. Exactly. They just don't. And they don't. when they step outside what is expected mm-hmm. or what is deemed okay behavior, mm-hmm. they get punished. Punished, yeah. A Frankly. heavy topic for today. I know. But And on that note. Yeah, you know, let's let's kind of <laughs> Let's kind of um, bring it back. It's it's the society in which we live. Um, it's a society that we have to change. But the first way to change is to talk about it. I acknowledge it. And if you're an educator, acknowledge it. Ooh, if you do are an I, educator, yeah. Do I deem students of color's behavior as a, as problematic? As, a, as problematic when they're really acting as children? Mm-hmm. Like really, that is a topic of just self-evaluation mm-hmm. that you know there's there's nothing that you can do beyond that because fixing that issue is already going so far to enforce change mm-hmm. so yeah so Thank you guys. stay aware um stay educated and of course stay conscious yeah if this episode resonated with you please 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 check out at justice for black girls and also the resources that we have on our page at stay conscious media um, or just reach out to us personally. We'd love to. The DMs continue. are always open. The DMs are always open. We'd love to continue this conversation. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening to us. And we'll see you on the next episode. Bye, guys.